Hi, my name is Thomas, and I am going to tell you a story. Since this is a new story, with many characters, it may not be in their best interest to listen while you work, or while reading articles, or while arguing with strangers online. In fact, the best way to listen to this episode would be while driving east along a dusty highway, alone, as the sun sets behind you. But it's ultimately up to you. I am sitting in my apartment in Brooklyn. It's a little after seven. I have a glass of whiskey and my script in front of me. There is no music. There are no sound effects. But, if you like, you can imagine that we are sitting around a low-burning fire on the coast of Greece. You can faintly hear the crackling of the fire, the crashing of waves on a dark shore, and the distant hum of wind through the olive groves. But that's it. This is the Elendred. Her ribs are broken, her arms bruised and swollen. Every ragged breath is agony. She looks up, her eyes watering in the wind, and marvels at the bright streaks of fire in the night sky. A hundred thousand burning arcs, like hell itself was opening up above her. She is alone. Her boots crunch and sink into the icy ground with every step. A light snow is falling. Her blood looks only like a splattered trail of darkness in the white, her shadow disintegrating behind her as she lurches on. She stumbles and falls, landing face first in the snow as her arms are dragged down by the black stone in her hands. It was barely the size of an eight ball, but a moment's distraction was enough for it to take her down. She takes quick breaths, the pain and the freezing cold melding into a single, stark demand. Stop. Die. She heaves her body up. She throws her knee forward. She manages to push herself onto her feet again. The lights of the nearest colony are miles away. She checks the network access on her armlet. Still nothing. She takes her first step since the fall. And another. And another. And another. And another. This is not the beginning of the story, nor is it the end. Alondra Ramirez wipes the sweat off her brow as she pedals on her exercise bike. That's time, a voice sounds. 380 calories burned in 30 minutes. <laughs> 380, Alondra breathes, still pedaling. That's right. <sighs> she pedals harder. Let's go to 400. Alondra Ramirez is the youngest person ever to be appointed to the position of first arcanist of the United Star Systems Alliance. Arcanist is an office, an appointed position within the government. It's sort of like special investigator into magical affairs. Her latest assignment, a wealthy collector who'd reported that his household android had begun practicing magic. This was completely impossible, but nonetheless, she'd been asked to go check it out. Alondra is aboard her personal spaceship, the Hyperion One, a yellow Oxide Industries Springsteen. She's been traveling through space for almost two weeks. Each day is the same. Eat, sleep, wrestle with hours of unstructured time, repeat. But Alondra enjoys space travel. 
She likes the quiet and that feeling of having nothing but time. Still, she'd only been as far as Chiron before, and 14 days in space is very different than four. She's glad to be nearing her destination. At 400 calories burned, she drags herself off the bike and shuts off the gravity pad. She floats to the shower, turns the water cold, and wraps her arms around herself, taking quick, deep breaths. As has become her habit, her fingers trace the raised scar tissue that begins by her spine and wraps around beneath her left breast. She dries off, pulls on a pair of white jeans, a white shirt, and her favorite jacket, a lightweight yellow article that evoked the sensibility of a bomber with a more casual space-agey material. She exits her quarters and floats down about 10 feet to the cockpit. She grabs the rail, swings her body right way around, then activates the gravity pad and drops to her feet again. The lights on the dash come to life as the voice of her artificial cohort greets her. Good workout this morning, Arcanist. Alondra cocks her head to the one side. Is it morning? It will be when we touch down in Harperstown, the cohort sounds reproachful. You know, it doesn't serve anyone to pester your ACI about semantics. Alondra pulls her hair back into a puff with a simple white headband. Sorry, Dan Dan. How far out are we? Fifteen minutes in slip, another ten to orbit. Alondra thumps into the captain's chair and pokes at her ear to try and get the water out. Let's go through my inbox. Arcanist, we are currently outrunning all traditional wave signal. Alondra cuts him off. I'm aware. Play the snooze messages from two weeks ago. Yes, you got it, Dan Dan demurs, before adding. You know... If you got your quantum transceiver repaired, we could just listen to the news. Alondra narrows her eyes. She paid for an advertising-free ACI, but she suspected there was still some subtle product placement. Noted, she says. Play my old messages. Yes, you got it. One of the screens blinks on, displaying the face of Evander Thorne. Evander is a political commentator, sort of an Anderson Cooper, Jimmy Fallon type person. Sorry, this'll have to be short. We're shooting this stupid satire video about the Regency, and I've got a ten-minute lunch break. Hi there. Don't know when you'll get this. Probably you're in the middle of your takeoff sequence, actually. But I, I can't tell you how excited I am that you're finally coming out to my neck of the woods. You'll stay with me, obviously. I have a fairly ostentatious apartment downtown, near the studio. Not too far from the Petraeus estate, either, in fact. I've sent the address to Dan Dan. Why you named it that, by the way, I will never understand. Oh, and about the Regency, listen. At this point in the video, Evander leans forward. I don't know if you're thinking much about it, but I just wanted to say that I'm sure there's nothing to worry about. There's absolutely zero chance of them actually choosing Burns. I, they'll pick Engelman or Haley or Carl Danning. My money's on Engelman, though. I mean, it's all in the name. Alondra watches this impassively, resting her cheek against her finger and thumb. Evander leans back and looks off camera, clearly being called away. Got it. Sorry, love. I've got to run. Have a good flight. I'll see you in a couple weeks. Can't wait. The video ends. Next message, Dan Dan chirps. Plain text from Norelle Peters. Alondra grins into her hand. Go ahead and read it out loud. Dan Dan reads without affect. Hey you, been a while. Believe it or not, I'm headed to Tyr picking up a couple of spell books. Pop Orbit after you interview the magic vacuum and we'll get a drink. Semicolon, close parenthesis. Alondra snorts. Thank you. Next message. Video from Jonathan Harper. Alondra leans forward. Yeah, I, I don't need to hear that one. Should I delete it, Arcanist? No. Alondra hesitates. 
Then she rolls her eyes. Just market red. Yes, you got it, Dan Dan pings. In slip, no particle interactions can occur, so it's always pitch black. Alondra taps at the console. Looks like we're coming up on Wolf, she says, bringing up a countdown on the display. Exiting slip in five, four, three, two. The countdown ends, the spacecraft jerks, and Alondra shields her eyes as the burning red light of Wolf floods the cockpit. It's like stepping out of a cave and into the Sahara Desert. As the universe comes into focus around her, the expanding blue sphere of Freya stands out like an island oasis in a volcanic black sea of space and meteor dust. Alondra can't help but smile. Hello, you, she murmurs. With a smooth, even motion, Alondra pulls back the sliding lever to power down the slip drive. Dan Dan performs the perfunctory readout. Welcome to Wolf System, a triplanetary red dwarf in the Ophiuchus constellation. Freya has a similar diurnal cycle to Earth's thanks to the pinpoint Dyson construct that artificially limits its exposure. A popular saying goes that if you visit Freya, you may never return. Alondra frowns derisively. Why is that, Dan Dan? Because it's the way Earth used to be. Orbital Command reaches out via radio. She scans her badge, the thaumaturgic triangle with stars at each edge, and is quickly cleared for entry. She doesn't even have to change course or go into a holding pattern. She's thankful. The Hyperion One was a burner, and fuel was expensive, and Alondra doesn't like wasting money, even the government's. As they hit Atmo, the ship's wings extend, slowing the descent and pulling the craft into a position for planner flight. Soon, they're gliding at 20,000 feet, the ocean spread out beneath them in dark hues, and Harperstown glittering ahead. Terraforming really, really worked here, she breathes. It's about midday over Harperstown when they land. On Earth, she would have had to dock at a port, but most exoplanets aren't as strict. Besides, on Chiron, for example, spaceports aren't exactly safe. Reactors are valuable things, and there's almost a cottage industry around the ones stolen from personal spacecraft. So she swings low over the hills a few miles north of the city. There, she engages the landing routine, lifts her hands up from the controls, and braces herself, as the four thrusters roar and the Hyperion One rears up, decelerates, and touches down in the long grass. Evander greets her at the door of his building. Though it's only been a couple of weeks, he looks older and more tired than in the video message. But, as he's often remarked to Alondra, age has always looked good on him. His dark hair is streaked with silver, and the lines on his face seem to only accentuate the tight angles of his face. Welcome, welcome. Where'd you park your auto bike? Ah, fine, good, fine. Uh, come on up and we'll have a pick-me-up. It's only after they're seated in his suite, all polished chrome and wood paneling, that he meets her gaze. He says, They fucking gave it to him. Alondra replaces her glass on the table. To Burns? Evander nods. Lord Regent of Magical Affairs in the USSA. Alondra raises her eyebrows, sits back in her seat. Evander's eyes watch her carefully. Look, I know it's not optimal, but I've been thinking about it, and I don't think it will be as bad as we thought. Alondra gives him a sharp look. He wants to abolish free practice, Evander. Abolish! 
Evander tries to interject. I know, he starts, but Alondra continues, which is just another way of saying that he wants to control who can or can't do magic, and we both know what that means. Evander raises his hand. Well, if anyone can reason with him, it's you. He can't enact policy until the first coven. Alondra picks up the glass of whiskey and drains it. Evander's brow falls and his tone hardens. Alondra, you have to go this year. Everyone gave you a pass last time because, well, you know. But like it or not, you represent something now. This is part of your job. He takes a deep breath and a sip from his glass. Now tell me about this magic android you're here to see. Eighty million miles away, two women wend their way through a crowded street in Halsburg, the second largest city on Tyr, the next planet out in the wolf system. Norel Peters, exactly five feet tall, with short, bleached hair and heavy circles under her eyes, strides ahead. Bridget Lozano follows her, a dark-haired and darkly made-up young woman in ragged black jeans and a motorcycle jacket. She stops every few paces to narrow her eyes at the locals, then hurries to catch up. Remind me what we're looking for, she says. Norel doesn't skip a beat. Odard's rare books. Rare books seems a little redundant in Halsper, don't you think? Bridget looks around at the passers-by, all of whom are better dressed for the cold. It's winter here, not that it's generally pleasant. The gravity is about 7% greater than that of Earth's. Bridget hates it. The street empties out into a square. Norell stops to read a help screen. Bridget backs up towards Norell, pushes her sleeve up, and illuminates her armlet, a wide fabric band with an embedded flexible screen that fit comfortably around her forearm. Did you try to nav it? she asks poking at the screen. Norell makes a pained expression. Yes, obviously I checked the map, but it's not listed. Bridget whistles. <laughs> oh, man. Norell looks at Bridget. What? Bridget extends her armlet to Norell. Have you seen this Polero account? The screen shows a photo-sharing application profile. It's basically Instagram. The account name reads Babes for Gabe, like with a number four, and it displays pictures of attractive women wearing dark blue shirts with the Regency crest on it and silk-screened images of Gabriel Byrne's face. One image shows a girl kissing the cheek of an apparently life-size 3D-printed sculpture of him, which looks eerily like an ancient Greek statue. Norell lets out an abrupt bark of laughter. <laughs> God, I hate people. Bridget looks critically at her armlet. You have to admit, he is kind of hot. Norell grinds her teeth. Bridget, even if I were straight, I wouldn't comment on the bonability of fascistic demagogues. Bridget keeps scrolling. Do you think that's it, though? People are genuinely like, here's this, like, you know, movie star sexy, this, like, Robert Fox type guy to save the universe. Robert Fox died on the set of his last movie because some moron helped him cast a Questelar circle as part of his research. Neural turns slowly as Bridget hugs her leather jacket tight around her body and shivers. It's starting to snow, she notes, unhappily. Maybe you should have checked the weather before putting on your standard band tee and crash jacket outfit. You know, it's my job to keep you from doing crime, not to keep you alive. I'm fine, Bridget hisses, shutting off her armlet. And what's on your choker? Little tiny skulls? Neural raises her eyebrows. Yes, that will keep the cold at bay. She points through the crowd at a tiny door crammed between a clothing store and a pharmacy. There it is. Norell traipses across the square. Bridget nearly loses sight of her before scrambling to catch up. 
How come you have tiny short lady legs, one of which is made of fucking cogs and springs, by the way, and you still walk so much faster than me? Because you move like a newborn cult, Narelle shouts over her shoulder as she moves through the crowd. Bridget mutters, and tenses her arms against the cold. A commotion, a protest of some kind, draws her gaze to a fast food place on their right, but she can't determine what's happening before Narelle pulls her into the dimly lit bookstore. Odored storefront comprises a rusted metal door and a tall glass window that's so dirty Bridget only realizes it's a window once inside. She peers out at the burger place while Narelle bangs on the desk bell. Ding, 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 ding. The protesters outside the restaurant, a franchise rocket burger, are trying to catch the attention of the rest of the crowd, holding signs and shouting. Bridget rubs at the dirt on the window, trying to see what the signs say. Behind her, she hears an old man greet Narelle. Hello? Can I help you? Narelle Peters, I called about the Tome of Shadows. Oh, yes, I, I remember you. Coming all the way from Chiron, yes? Yes, it's a long trip for two books. Two? I commissioned a spell book for... It doesn't matter, I'm here for the Tome. Bridget is still peering at the crowd, which has grown quite substantial. She can hear the chanting, but can't quite make out what they're saying. Behind her, Odard clears his throat. Ah, <clears throat> uh, yes. Well, I'm afraid to tell you that a young lady came in here yesterday and bought it off me. Narelle straightens up and pulls her head back with a rigid motion. What? What can I do? She offered me three times the price, and food is scarce. Bridget is vaguely aware that Narelle has just received bad news, but her eyes are glued to the rocket burger. One of the full wall windows is smashed with a brick, and a roar of approval goes up from the crowd. Narelle slams her fist on the desk. Look, who... who was this person? No idea. She had an RO badge. It was old, but what do I know? Regency? What do you mean the badge was old? Three stars instead of four, so from before Ra system was chartered. Bridget lets out a low groan of shock. Oh, holy shit. Odard and Narelle turn. Men in bloodied white shirts have hooked a truck up to a chain and winch, which is pulling one of the big Rocket Burger service bots out of the broken window and onto the street. The service bot is purposefully cartoonish, a big boxy head plastered with a permanent smile and a painted carapace from which its multi-articulated arms drag on the ground. As the robot is pulled into view, a cheer goes up from the crowd. Men detach the chain from the thing and heft its torso up so that it almost appears to be kneeling. Police sirens can be heard approaching from the other end of the square. One of the men lifts a shotgun above his head, provoking yet another cheer. Holy shit, Bridget says again. The service bot turns its head back and forth haplessly, perhaps searching for people to offer burgers to. For a moment, Bridget could swear that its eyes meet hers, because the swivel of its head stops for a moment, and the mechanical crinkles around its eyes lift ever so slightly. Then the man with the shotgun lowers it at the service bot's head. It explodes in a spray of metal and circuitry. Everything seems to happen at once. Odard yells, Get away from the window! Sirens, screams, and the chatter of an automatic weapon fill their ears. Riot police pour past the shop, pushing civilians to the ground as they try to get a bead on the agitators. Odard and Norell pull Bridget away from the window and onto the ground. They drag themselves behind Odard's heavy steel desk, while outside, chaos reigns.
The sun is darkening in the skies when Alondra arrives at the Petraeus estate. Though Evander said his apartment was ostentatious, it's nothing compared to the grandeur of this building, a Romanesque villa built at the edge of an immense canyon through which the Jonathan River rushes. The distant white noise of cascading water is audible even from here, a mile or so south of the falls. Alondra parks her autobike and flashes her badge to the private security team at the gate. On her way up to the villa, she passes a number of bronze statues and tries hard not to look at them. On the stoop, an automated security system scans her face and unlocks the door for her, revealing a sunlit atrium replete with ferns. A man in his late fifties, immaculately dressed in blue linen, steps into view at the other end of the atrium. Arcanist Ramirez? Alondra adjusts her jacket. Yes, sir. The older man sweeps past the ferns with the air of a large bird of prey. Julian Petraeus, thank you for coming, thank you. He shakes her hand, eyes never leaving Alondra's. It's a... Uh, Mrs. Petraeus is in the small parlor with my son, Henry. She's tutoring him in math. He's much too advanced for traditional schooling. We took a short tour of the city school Felix attended back in the day, but I'm afraid it's fallen to ruin. I mean, they don't even have a full-time nutritionist. Please, come through. Julian Petraeus says this all with the anxious, false nonchalance of someone who is not used to speaking to normal people and, as a result, has no idea what they talk about. He's taller and older than Evander, and there's a haughty, owlish look to the lines of his face. He's a man with the kind of glossy veneer of someone who moisturizes daily and is never wanted for anything. Alondra follows him out of the atrium and down a hall, then through an enormous living room, perhaps the large parlor, Alondra thinks, and down another hall. The whole time, Julian talks as if he were giving a somewhat hasty tour. This was donated by the Better Worlds Initiative, he says, gesturing at a painting, and my grandfather rescued that during the Mideast Reclamation Project, the first round. In the final hallway, he actually stops to direct her attention at a glass case. This is an invisible duster from the War Between, one of the prototypes. The rest were disenchanted after the Juno Convention. Alondra tries to hmm agreeably, because Julian is looking at her expectantly. The duster is a very light brown, with a wide collar, and a decidedly ugly zipper in the front. Thank goodness it makes you invisible, I guess, she actually says out loud, before remembering who she is speaking to. Julian frowns, turns, and pushes open a large double door. Penelope, the arcanist is here to see you. Alondra steps through the door, casting her eyes quickly over the room's relatively humble furnishings, relative to the rest of the house, that is. She then stops dead in her tracks. Across the room, Penelope Petraeus looks up from her work and tucks a strand of loose hair behind her ear. Her hair is a lustrous auburn, her skin is inviting, rosy and warm. She is beautiful, alert, disarmingly and immediately friendly, but not without the hesitancy you would expect when greeting a stranger in your home. Perfect can be a clumsy, unspecific word, but in this case there is no other. Penelope Petraeus is perfect. Penelope blushes and looks down, and Alondra realizes she's been staring. And she's not the only one. Henry Petraeus, who must be about 12 or 13, is staring at Alondra so hard she wonders if he's ever seen a black woman in person before. Penelope closes the math textbook and places her hand on the boys. Would you go and play in the drawing room, Hal? Henry stands, grabs the textbook, gives Alondra one more wide-eyed look, and just about hurdles out of the room.
Julian glances between them twice. Well, he says. Penelope turns her attention to him, waiting patiently. Julian clears his throat. <clears throat> well, he says again, quietly, I'll be in my study. He turns swiftly and closes the door behind him. The room feels suddenly too big and too well lit. The late afternoon sun is filtered by gauzy white curtains, casting the antique wooden tables and dark green upholstery in an attractive elfin light. Would you like to sit down? Penelope watches Alondra carefully, inquisitively, perhaps sadly, Alondra thinks, though she's not sure why. She sits down in the least comfortable-looking chair, a plain wood affair facing Penelope over the coffee table. So, Alondra begins, eyeing Penelope carefully. I understand you have been practicing magic. Yes, Penelope leans forward earnestly. Alondra nods. This is a very different meeting than she expected. The android, the woman, sitting in front of her with flushed red cheeks and night blue eyes flecked with gray, is 100% lacking in exposed gears, glowing LEDs, or fashionably cyber-industrial mesh alloy, all the features Alondra might have expected. How long have you been with the Petraeuses? she asks, desperately searching for a seam or a switch or sensor. Penelope sits back. Three years, shortly after Julian's wife left him. And are you... Penelope smiles wryly. There has been no marriage ceremony, and I have no citizenship paperwork, if that's what you're asking. Penelope Petraeus is just the name I was given. Alondra tries consciously to relax her face. You've been raising Henry? She asks, trying to be friendly. Yes, Penelope nods. And Julian, Alondra starts, but Penelope talks over her. Yes, I raise him as well. Penelope adjusts the books on the table. Alondra regrets this whole line of questioning. What was the point? She tries to, hmm, obtusely, and unshoulders her satchel. I've prepared a series of tests, fairly standard depth of proclivity stuff, but first, I have a few more questions. Alondra reaches into her satchel, a waterproof military surplus affair, and takes out a small stone dish, a millennium-era coin, and a vial. Does anyone in the house do magic besides you? No. Not Julian, Alondra asks. Penelope smiles and looks down. Julian collects artifacts like trophies, but he has no proclivity. Do you recall any magician ever casting a spell on you, of any kind? No. Are you familiar with the term homunculus? A mundane construct, typically though not strictly non-living, imbued with limited and often temporary magical abilities by a gifted sorcerer. Alondra nods, slowly. Mm-hmm. No one homunculized me, Lady Arcanist. Alondra regards Penelope thoughtfully, then asks, When did you begin your practice? I... I don't remember. You don't remember? I've been finding exercises online. Got it. Alondra furrows her brow. Okay. 
Let's start with a classic simulacre. She pushes the coin towards Penelope, who eyes it with a look of, what is it, trepidation, anxiety? You're going to make this coin walk across the table. Penelope stares at the coin, her face inscrutable. There's nothing to worry about, Alondra says. You haven't done anything wrong. The new Lord Regent may disagree with you there. Well, he's not here, Alondra tightens her lips. Go ahead. Penelope sits motionless, her eyes fixed on the coin. Alondra tilts her head to one side and leans forward, resting her elbows on her knees and letting her hands fall slack. A long moment passes, the women utterly motionless, Alondra watching Penelope, Penelope looking down at the coin. The stillness is broken by Penelope, who turns her head and looks past Alondra. I'm sorry, I... I can't. You can't? No, Penelope says. Alondra collects the coin and pushes forward the granite dish. Then let's move on to conjury. I, I typically start with a crystal generation. How's your physics? Penelope is shaking her head fervently. No. Alondra cocks her head to the other side. No? Penelope's cheeks are bright red, and she appears to be staring intently at the floor lamp on the other side of the room. Alondra picks up the vial. Alchemy, then. Uh, this is gold. You'll be coaxing it to platinum. I can't, Penelope says again, cutting Alondra off. I'm sorry. Excuse me. She stands abruptly and leaves the room through the doors Henry left by, with the quick steps of someone who is doing their best not to run. Though she never looked back, Alondra could have sworn that there were tears in her eyes. Alondra is flabbergasted. She feels somehow guilty and wonders if she should have said something, called her back, or... But what would have been the point? She rubs her face, smoothing the wrinkles of confusion out of her brow, and sweeps her belongings back into her bag. I think she was just embarrassed, she explains to Julian in the hall by his study. She's certainly knowledgeable. I think she's been reading a lot on the net, but she certainly didn't do any magic. Julian is visibly relieved. Well, thank the graces for that. Did you actually see her cast a spell? The report made reference to some fairly advanced simulacres, illusions, pseudo-conjuries, and enchantments. Julian shakes his head. Most of those were Henry's claims. I made the report when, well, it must have been one of Felix's going-away gifts. Felix is your other son? Yes, he's twelve years older than Henry, nurses an interest in the arcane, and in punishing me for my divorce. Or he did, before he left. Julian shrugs. Boys will be boys. Alondra narrows her eyes. What exactly did you see? Julian waves his hand. I can see that I completely overreacted. Penelope was coming to bed one night, and an image of my ex-wife walked in behind her. Julian clears his throat uncomfortably, <clears throat> then lets out a bark of laughter. <laughs> Christ, and to think I'm just now thinking of this, of course it had to be Felix. Why is that? Penelope has no idea what my ex looks like. On the autobike ride back to Evander's, Alondra tries to tear her mind away from the Petraeuses. She turns on her headset, and Dan Dan greets her warmly. Good evening, Arcanist. Did you catch all that? 
Alondra asks. Yes, you got it, Dan Dan delivers his canned response. Alondra snorts. I take it you don't have much to contribute. No, Arcanist, but you're missing a gorgeous sunset. Indeed, the sky has turned to a bloody purple bruise, feathered with crimson clouds. Though the sun did not actually change position here, the light changed as the Dyson aperture closed. Take a picture, Dan Dan. It'll last longer. Yes, you got it. When she pulls up outside of Anders, a familiar figure is waiting by the door to the complex. Alondra covers her face with both hands as Jonathan Harper touches one finger to his forehead in salutation. What the hell are you doing here? She shouts over the muffled roar of the autobike's jets. Jonathan laughs. You ignore all my calls. Alondra engages the parking protocol and jumps down off the bike. She walks up to Jonathan, stopping a few paces away and looking him up and down. He stands at about her height, with short, sandy blonde hair that somehow both tousled and quaffed. He wears a dark brown leather jacket and blue jeans, and though he's gone to the effort of cultivating a blue-collar machinist aesthetic, he hasn't quite escaped the look of money. The image of Julian flashes in her mind, and she finds herself hoping fervently that Jonathan holds on to his humanity better than that. She steps forward and pulls him into a hug, ignoring the look of surprise and relief. I promise I'm not going to have a meltdown at you like last time, he says, holding her tightly. Fine. Come up and meet Evander. It turns out Evander has already gone to bed, so Alondra pours them both a glass of whiskey, and they talk quietly over the kitchen bar. How did you even know I'd arrived? Jonathan taps his earpiece. I was a little bad. I patched my cohort into orbital command. You hacked your dad's terminal? If by hacked, you mean I know what his favorite baseball team is, then yes. Better hope no one finds out. Jonathan rolls his eyes. Wouldn't be my first slap on the wrist. Perks of the city being named after you. Hmm. See, I always confuse those with the perks of your family owning Harper Terraforming. Or the perks of your dad being Freya's planetary rep. Oh my god. Jonathan sits back. What? Jonathan places a hand over his heart. I think I just checked my privilege. Alondra hangs her jaw in mock disbelief. I am going to kill you. They're both laughing, but Jonathan's eyes are starting to shine a little too brightly and hang a little too long on her. So she hums and replaces the whiskey bottle in the cabinet. I brought you something, Jonathan says. Two things, actually. I don't need another railgun. Good guess, but no, it's not a weapon or a spaceship. How's that old Springsteen holding up, by the way? Hyperion's doing just fine, thanks for asking. Good, Jonathan grins. Working on her with you was like the most fun I've ever had. Alondra looks down. So, what did you bring? Jonathan hoists his leather backpack up onto the stool next to him, which seems to take an unusual summoning of strength, and extracts, with a grunt, a black sphere about the size of a plum. Oof. He sets the sphere on the kitchen bar, where it lands with a dull but impressive thud. What do you think this is, he says. The sphere is perfectly black and matte, reflecting no light whatsoever as far as Alondra can tell. The effect is rather strange. It almost looks like dead pixels in the center of the granite countertop. Not something at all, but the total absence of something. 
My great-grandfather found this on Freya while we were terraforming. Kept in the family because why not? But honestly, we have no idea what it is. We just call it the Blackstone. Alondra reaches out and touches it, and is surprised at how cold it is. She picks it up, or tries to, and hits her elbow hard against the countertop instead. Ow! Yeah, Jonathan chuckles. It weighs 50 pounds. What is it? Alondra rubs her elbow. Osmium? Jonathan shakes his head. Not as far as we can tell. We've had tons of experts try and analyze it. Geologists, physicists, magicians. Nothing. No readings. So why, Alondra begins, you're the smartest person I know. If anyone can figure it out, it's you. It's a strange gift, but a welcome kind of strange coming from Jonathan. Thank you, she says. Jonathan reaches into his bag. Second gift. Uh-oh, Alondra smiles. Jonathan takes out a small receiver, an oblong metal instrument with a mic and a couple generic ports. You've heard of these, though I admit the commercial name does not do me any favors. But I, I made this one myself. He pushes it over to Alondra. It's a soulmate QPR on the latest protocol. Quantum paired with exactly one other, so you can communicate instantaneously at any distance, even in slip. It's not cohort-enabled, but it's got a C3 port, so it'll plug into your headset or your armlet or whatever. He swirls the ice in his glass and smiles embarrassedly at her. I have the other one. Jonathan, I... She notes the engraved plate monogram on the side. ER. I know yellow's your favorite color, and I should have just used gold, but, well, I wanted to try smelting my own bronze, and it didn't really turn out yellow at all, so... <laughs> Whoops. It's really beautiful, Alondra says. Jonathan places a hand on her arm. Look, Alondra takes a deep breath. Jonathan withdraws his hand quickly. I know, I know, here it comes again, you're thinking, but I promise I'm just going to say one thing and then I'm out of your hair for the night. Jonathan takes a pull of whiskey and exhales through his nose, then raises his eyes to meet Alondra's. I know you don't love me. Not, not now, anyway. And that's okay. I, I didn't come here tonight expecting, expecting anything. But I want you to know that I will be here. When, whenever. I'm not going anywhere. And I'm not trying to say that I will wait for you, though I suppose that is what I'm saying. But I, I think what I'm really trying to say is, he smiles. What I'm trying to say is that you just aren't going to get rid of me. Like, there is nothing you could do that would make me love you any less. And whether or not we ever get to be together in that way, I just want you to know that I will always be here. For you. For anything. I will always be here. Jonathan... That's, like, so unhealthy. Jonathan's eyes slide almost imperceptibly from left to right to left as he changes his focus from one of her eyes to the other. No, it isn't. He stands up and shoulders his backpack. Wow, that's so much lighter. 
He starts to move for the door, but stops and turns back. And hey, it's good to see you. You seem, well, you seem better. Thanks, Jonathan. Later, Arcanist. Hours earlier on Tier, Bridget and Norell were still sheltering behind the stacks in Odor's store. How often does this happen, Norell continues, as Bridget peers out at the crowd. Odor shakes his head. We haven't gone more than a couple weeks without some kind of protest. Uh, people here were already subsisting, and with jobs disappearing the way they've been, they've got nothing to do but riot. Norell snorts. It's not like they've been starving. Depends on the week, Odor grunts. When the generators go down, which they do all the time, the synthesis plants stop production as well, and there just aren't enough greenhouses actually growing things here. You should see the price of tomatoes right now. You mean people are actually living off of Cynthia? Slate Act colonies. They basically left us here with a generator and a few last-generation multibots. Another spray of gunfire shatters the bookstore window, causing all three to cover their heads. Odor groans. I tell you, the minute I save up for a carrier ticket. Bridget frowns at the open window, the sounds of chaos now even louder than before. People are dying, she says. Odard mumbles something in response, but Bridget has stopped listening. She gets up slowly and moves towards the door. Norell looks up and sees her. She scrambles to her feet, but her prosthetic leg jams and she curses. Bridget! Bridget opens the door of the shop and walks slowly out into the square. She closes her eyes and raises her hands in front of her, breathing deeply, the smell of gun smoke filling her nostrils. Norelle pulls herself up using the counter as a lever, ignoring Odor's cries of warning. She reaches down and manually resets the main coil in her prosthetic, and as she does, she's yelling in this constant stream, Bridget, I need you to listen to me. Turn around and come back here right now. The coil springs into position, and Norelle sprints for the door. Bridget? Bridget opens her eyes, and with intensity and focus, she intones in a low voice. Neruza Okaza. The square falls quiet. Norelle stops in the doorway, supporting herself on the frame. A clatter echoes across the silence as a rifle drops to the ground from its owner's hand, slack at his side. Every person in the square is standing in this sort of dazed, upright pose. They just seem to have stopped, straightened up, and fallen asleep at their feet. Norelle looks behind her. Odard is standing in the back of the shop, eyes glazed over, hands swaying at his side. Okay, 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 okay. Norelle walks up to Bridget and grabs her arm. Okay. You're okay, but we have to get out of here. Come on. Bridget lowers her arms slowly, looking around the square as if dazed. Norelle bangs her armlet against her leg, bringing her cohort to life. Wormwood, we need to get Regency ambulances to our location now. All right. Would you like to specify your emergency? No. Yes, just flag for enchantment. Kaze's lexicon. And make the call by VPN. Anonymous tip, just... Just get them here. She shakes Bridget. Come on. I was just trying to help. Come on. Across the square, Bridget sees a woman in a blue hijab. The woman is standing very still, 
but as Bridget's eyes fall on her, the woman clearly turns her head, looks at Bridget, and then quickly looks away again and goes motionless. She's pretending, Bridget says slowly. Narelle yanks at Bridget's arm so hard that for a moment she's sure it's been dislocated. She cries in pain just before Narelle grabs her by the jaw and turns her face to hers. Look at me. You just fucked up, but there's no time to yell at you about it now, so snap the fuck out of it and use those skinny legs of yours. Bridget nods, and almost unconsciously she begins to run after Narelle. She runs through the square, past smoking tear gas canisters and past the police and protesters gently swaying around them. But her eyes are fixed on the blue hijab. Evander knocks on Alondra's door shortly after dawn. Alondra's been up for a while, sitting up in the beautiful guest bed, reading the Petraeus report. Come down and have some coffee. Do you have to work today? Alondra shakes her head. I should swing by the facility where the androids were built. Uh, Aphrodite Industries, you heard of them? Anyway, I can wait till tomorrow. Evander claps his hands together. Excellent. I'll see you downstairs. They take Evander's car to the hills near Harper's Fall, not far from where Alondra left the Hyperion, and spend the day hiking down to the river where it pours down into the ravine. You can see how the stone changes color right around the falls, Evander points out, as if it were a painting that he was particularly fond of. Totally different composition. That's also why there's so many flowers blooming south of the falls, and mostly long grass to the north. The view is spectacular. The ravine seems to split the world in half, as if Harper's Fall was the impact point of some devastating blow. The cliffs are a rich mottled brown and red, hung with flowering vines and scrub. Evander smiles, looking from Alondra and back excitedly. It gets better, he says. They're not exactly sure why yet, more phosphorus in the air or something, but all the flowers here glow bioluminescent at night. They have lunch by the falls, and then hike back towards the Hyperion. A vendor wants to see it. The sun is already getting darker in the sky when they reach it, the orange light of evening glinting off the 40-foot-tall yellow ship. And they call this a personal spacecraft, Evander scoffs. Yeah, well, you show me how to fit a cockpit, a bunk room, a kitchen, rec room, and life support system, a nuclear reactor, and 50 tons of compressed fuel into a shoebox, and I'll try flying that. Evander chuckles. He passes his hand over the Oxide Industries logo. What's the model again? She's a Springsteen. Came out, what, 20 years ago? Named after a millennium-era rock star. I still remember the NetVision ads they ran when I was a kid, just blasting a plasma trail across the Grand Canyon with Born to Run playing. Alondra looks up at the darkening sun. We should get back. Evander furrows his brow. What? And miss the flowers? I'm tired. Alondra thumps her back against the side of the Hyperion. The warm metal feels good against her back, solid and comforting. I haven't even checked in with my cohort all day. Let's stay till the sky turns red. It's unbelievable, Evander says, as Alondra taps on her armlet and it blinks to life. Emergency. Plain text message from Jonathan Harper, Dandan states, rather calmly, as if he didn't think it was much of an emergency. Plain text? Alondra frowns. He never sends those. What does it say? Dad's baseball team. Not secure. Patching your soulmate. Evander laughs. Is this the guy who's obsessed with you? What does dad's baseball team mean? 
It's something he's intercepted from orbital. Alondra frowns. She reaches into her pocket, and her fingers close around the smooth, oblong piece of metal, which feels almost impossibly delicate. She flips open the C3 cover on her armlet and fits the soulmate into the port. It slides in with a satisfying click. Quantum protocol device detected, Dan Dan says facilely, parsing audio encoding. This transmission was timestamped 67 minutes ago and set to loop until it was received. A sort of scratchy audio feed follows, the kind that gets transmitted by wave over supposedly very good wave transmission. Regency? We didn't receive any advance. Because I obviously didn't want to telegraph my presence here. The voice is warm and friendly, almost like a Vander's, but deeper, and with a more commanding edge to it. It's the kind of voice that gives orders so naturally, you'd have to really be paying attention to notice that you were being given orders. Now... Unless you have some strong objection, I'm putting my fleet into Geosync and I'm docking the Alexander in Harperstown. And, if you wouldn't mind, I'd like you to send out an APB to law enforcement and all private security forces, advising that in accordance with the CDA, they are to defer to Regency officers in all matters until such a time as the artifact is contained. The audio cuts off abruptly. Evander clears his throat and emits a breathy laugh. What on earth was that about? CDA is confiscation of dangerous artifacts. Alondra feels like her whole body has been shocked into stillness, electricity shooting through her muscles. Gabriel Burns is here, on Freya. He must have left right after his appointment. Evander frowns. What would he be doing here? Alondra looks up at him. He's come for the android. The house bot that can do magic. But she can't. She can't do magic. She's helpless. Evander steps forward. Now, Alondra, calm down. You don't understand. The robot is... She's a person, Evander. She's a person. Confiscation is just a euphemism. You know that, right? They're going to destroy her. They'll kill her, Evander. Alondra, I... Have to go. I have to stop this. Alondra looks west, towards the falls in the Petraeus estate. She moves towards it, stops, turns, and hugs Evander. I'm sorry. I have to go. Well, Al wait, Alondra, I'm sure... I'll see you back at the apartment. Alondra takes off running down the slope of the hill. Dan Dan, how long to the Petraeus estate? At your current speed, you will arrive in two hours and forty minutes. Call my autobike. Plot a course to intercept. Yes, Arcanist. Autobike intercepting your path in approximately 15 minutes. Alondra tears down the hills, the long grass whipping at her jeans, staining the white denim with streaks of pale yellow-green. She nearly loses her footing a dozen times, sliding down through the loose earth, brown hands skidding along the ground to try and rebalance. She's so out of breath she's choking when she reaches the bottom of the first hill, her knees crying in pain as she struggles up a small hillock, then careens down the slope again. At the top of the next hill, she collapses to her knees, utterly unable to run any further. Her breath ragged, she narrows her eyes against the darkening sun and scans the sky. A small black speck is barreling towards her from the south. Autobike incoming, remarks Dan Dan. Set course for the Petraeus estate as soon as I'm on. Yes, you got it. You should arrive in nine minutes. Alondra gets to her feet. 
She hears the jets of the auto bike as it speeds towards her. Dan Dan, Alondra says hoarsely. Estimate the Regency's arrival time at the Petraeus estate? Based on the transmission timestamp of 22.23 Freya hours and average travel times from orbit to Harperstown and from Harperstown to the Petraeus estate, I estimate the Regent will arrive in 12 minutes. After a breathless nine minutes in the air, Alondra is once again at the gate to the Petraeus estate. The security guards make to stop her, but she flashes her badge and says, Stand down, in accordance with the CDA, and is commanding a voice as she can muster. They let her pass. On the stoop, she hammers on the front door with her fist. Julian himself opens the door. Arcanist Ramirez, what are you doing here? How did you get onto the grounds? Penelope, where is she? She's in the drawing room. We were just having a nightcap. Arcanist, it's nearly eleven. Julian is wearing what looks to be the most comfortable pants in the world, and a partially unbuttoned Henley. He would look almost cozy if it weren't for the garish silver silk blazer, which kind of spoils it. Without waiting, Alondra charges through the atrium, relying on memory to guide her through the halls towards the large parlor she remembers passing through, as Julian chases her, yelling, Arcanist, what are you doing? Alondra bursts into the huge tapestry drawing room, startling Penelope to her feet. The sounds of Beethoven's fifth abruptly die as Henry looks up from the baby grand he's sitting at, then just about levitates off the piano stool and darts out of the room, just like before. Adjusting the collar of her jacket, and passing her fingers absently over her hair, Alondra strides towards Penelope. We have to go. For your safety, you need to come with me. The doors crash open as Julian enters behind her. Arcanist, what is the meaning of this? Alondra turns on him. The Regency is coming to destroy your housebot. Gabriel Burns himself is here, and believe me, they will not be bargained with. Julian steps back in shock. The Regency? But I've received no word, no warning. He's invoked the confiscation of dangerous artifacts. How do you think I was able to get past your security? They've been instructed to defer to Regency officers without question. Luckily for you, they don't seem to know the difference between an RO and an Arcanist. Julian is left sputtering. Alondra turns back to Penelope. I wish there was time for you to pack a bag or something, but there really, really isn't. You have to follow me if you want to live. Alondra strides past Julian, who still stands gaping. At the door, she turns. Penelope hasn't moved. She and Julian are just staring at her. What are you doing? Penelope looks down at her hands and knits her fingers together. Her body is shaking, but her feet are planted firmly on the floor. I can't. What do you mean you can't? Penelope glances at Julian. I can't leave the grounds. It's on my directive stack. Outside the estate, three cars pull silently up the asphalt road to the gravel park by the gate, where they grind to a distinguished halt. The two outside cars spring their doors open in unison, and men in dark blue coats and shiny black shoes spring out of them, quickly arraying themselves around the perimeter of the gravel circle. One of the men approaches the gate, flashes a badge, and exchanges hushed words with the security guard. The guard moves away, and the gates swing open. The man at the gate turns to the other officers and raises his left hand in the air, then swings it down and folds it behind his back. The other officers do the same, then fall to one knee. The door of the middle car opens. The officers kneel, 
their right hands rest on their sidearms, their left hands pressed to their backs in courtesy, their eyes glued to the center car. For a moment there is only cool night air and quiet, quiet so profound that the crunch of gravel has the effect of a hammer striking an anvil as a worn leather boot swings out from the car and lands in the stony ground. The boot is a thousand shades of brown, polished and repolished a hundred times over a hundred casual scars of use. The eyes of the officers click upward as a tall shape in a tall overcoat unfolds itself from the car and onto its feet, the second boot grinding into the earth as its owner stands. Back inside, Alondra advances on Julian. She can't leave? A console lights up near the door to the parlor. Guests have entered through the front door. Alondra points towards the door. Do you hear that? They are inside. To her surprise, Julian starts crying. I was so afraid this would happen. After I made the report, I was so afraid you would take her away from me. Julian starts to sink into a chair, but Alondra grabs him by the collar of his silver jacket and pulls him into the center of the room. Listen to me. It was never my intention to take this woman from you, but there are people coming now who will. People with guns and badges. People who would rather destroy Penelope than let people think there's a robot out there who can summon Bayons or ensorcel men. Julian is shaking his head. No. No. Look at me. When they walk in here, they will take her, and there is nothing you can do to stop them. Julian's eyes lock with hers, red-rimmed and leaking. Alondra places her hands on either side of Julian's face, pressing her palms firmly against his smooth cheekbones. If you really love her, if you care about her at all, you have to remove every directive in her stack that might hurt her chances of survival, right down to the fundamentals. She lets Julian go. He backs away like a feral animal wiping tears from his eyes. If you don't, she'll die, Alondra says. Julian looks up at her and blinks away tears. He moves to Penelope and whispers in her ear. She straightens up and he places a hand behind her neck. Penelope yelps in pain as blood spurts from the back of her neck. Alondra starts forward, but Julian is pulling a leaf of skin up from her neck as if it were a sheet of marzipan. He presses his fingers in a practiced typing, whispers into Penelope's ear again, then pushes the sheet of skin back into place and collapses on the couch. It's done. Reset. Factory directives. The sound of glass shattering from down the hall towards the interior of the house makes them all turn their heads. Alondra turns to Julian. What's the fastest way out of here? Julian gestures towards the curtains. That way, to the back garden. Alondra runs to the curtained wall and pulls the drapes aside, revealing a mass of hedges and statues artistically lit. Alondra shivers. For a moment, she is transported to a similar garden, a dim, artistically lit statuary in Virginia, and she unconsciously places a hand over the scar on her left side. Then she pulls the glass door aside and gestures to Penelope. Come on. Penelope presses one hand to the back of her neck as she moves towards the door. She turns and looks at Julian, and Alondra notices the skin seems to have already closed up, smooth and perfect, even beneath the blots of blood. Thank you, Penelope says. 
Alondra looks towards the entry door. She hears the loud drum of footfalls on the other side. They're coming, she shouts, and Penelope looks at her, then runs past her, through the glass door, and out into the garden. Alondra casts one more look back into the room, just long enough to see the door begin to swing open inside the parlor, then she too is running, running into the dark outdoors after Penelope. They flee from innocuous fountains and ferns into a corridor of hedges, turning corners every instant as they dash through the maze. Alondra's heart is beating in her throat as she sees the maze open up in front of them, and she races ahead of a Penelope and around the corner, and... Whoa! The ground drops away in front of them. They take in the sound of the rushing river beneath them. The falls. They see the phosphorescent green and blue flowers dotting the dark cliff on the other side of the chasm. A sudden wind rips through them, buffeting Alondra's jacket about her frame. Alondra turns to Penelope and is shocked by how scared she looks. Somewhere in the garden, they hear a shout, and Penelope winces. Flashlight beams swing wildly out of the gardens between them and the house, each corresponding to some anonymous enemy charging towards them. All of them are close. Someone has turned on an alarm, so the estate security will be coming for them too. Alondra steps towards Penelope, who is shivering, staring blankly at her, arms wrapped around her body, her paper-thin blouse and tapered pants wholly unfit for fleeing in the night. Look, it's going to be okay. I promise. Look at me. I just need you to take my hand. Penelope looks at her. She nods. I trust you. What? I trust you. Alondra crinkles her brow as if confused. Come on, she says. Penelope steps forward and takes Alondra's hand. Alondra is struck by its warmth, its softness. She closes her hand around Penelope's. She closes her eyes and tries to quiet her mind. She tries to shut out the tramping of boots, the ROs who will be on them in seconds, the siren sounding, and the yelling men. Then she turns and drags Penelope off the side of the cliff. This was episode one of The Elendred, and the first episode ever of Thomas Tells a Story. The show is written and created by Thomas Constantine Moore, produced by Janelle Yee and Toro Adeyemi, and edited by Max Bernstein. I want to thank my studio audience tonight, Janelle Yee, Luke LaMontagne, Toro Adeyemi, Max Bernstein, Chris Garber, Taylor Rose, Olivia Vadney, and Camille Soheet. Thank you for listening. The story will continue next week. Hey there, it's me again. Thank you again so much for lending your ears and imaginations to this project. One thing I missed in the outro of the first few episodes is a very important thank you to Joe Mendick, who did our theme music. The man is a genius. The show is called Thomas Tells a Story. You can follow us on Twitter at TTAS Podcast or join the community on Reddit at r slash Thomas Tells. If you love the show and want to keep it going, there are a few things you can do to help. Most importantly, engage with us. If you have questions or comments, please reach out directly on Twitter or ask a question on the subreddit and we'll try to address those questions on the air in a future episode. 
You can also leave us a review or a rating. And lastly, if you have the means, buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash Thomas Tells. Thank you so much, folks. See you next week.